church, and um, uh, they they say, oh, uh, here's a brother. Uh, brother, we'd like for you to preach this morning. And uh, you just learn to kind of go into a place with uh, something on your heart. Uh, the only thing that I can think of that's a little bit more frightening is to be coming in at the last minute and, and, and the preacher walks up to you and says, um, you're the song leader tonight. <laughs> and uh, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff got caught up with some, some medical stuff tonight. Uh, we're thankful for, uh, for him and his work and the way that he serves the community as a, as a medical uh, professional. But every once in a while he gets caught. And so we're, uh, Brad, thank you for, for doing that tonight. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's been, as you know, it's been kind of an eventful day. Uh, first time in 30 years, a uh, fire alarm went off at the end of church. And uh, that's what that sound was, that, that beeping noise over here on this end of the building as we were dismissing this morning. And just as sort of as a point of reference, if you hear that noise again, uh, that means that it's time to leave the building. The fire department has sort of a dim view of showing up at a place and not knowing if there's a fire or not and finding people uh, fellowshipping inside the church. And so uh, uh, we'll, there'll be some more things that we're going to say about that in the coming weeks, just, uh, just to educate ourselves better on how to handle that situation. But, uh, but that's what that was this morning. It was, uh, it was a false alarm, but it was, still, uh, uh, it was still an opportunity for us to get out of the auditorium and into the parking lot, into the sunshine after many days of rain, and uh, to enjoy that sunshine. What a, what a beautiful day that God, that God has given us. Uh, tonight... Uh, we're going to, um, as you know, we've been thinking about some of these, these uh, passages out of the latter part of Isaiah. We're going to do so tonight by uh, looking at some of the things that Isaiah said about this special servant in chapter 54. But we want to begin with a word of prayer. Ask God to bless us as we study this great passage, this great chapter out of this great prophecy from Isaiah. Let's bow our heads and join our hearts. Father, we're moved once again by just the sheer power of these words. These words are, are, are like timpani to our souls and to our spirits. They, they, they enrich our understanding of, of what Your human project is all about. And so as, as we, we dive into these words, Father, to do the... The, uh, the, the, the work of, of, of mining their meaning and, and, and working with them, Father, and, 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 and asking You to make these words alive in us so that they shape our thinking. We're, we're asking in the name of our Savior, Father, that You give us uh, eyes that see and ears that hear. For we seek understanding. We seek wisdom. We seek, Father, to be better people and, 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 and better knowers and thinkers of what you are doing and, 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 and your, your purposes in all of creation. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus and all the church said, Amen. As you know, uh, this figure in Isaiah chapter 40, all the way to chapter 66, is sort of a mysterious figure. He is somebody that is not readily or clearly identified in Isaiah nor in all of the Old Testament. But he is somebody that became very, very important in the way that the Jewish people thought about their future. 
thought about what God is going to be doing in the future with, with Jerusalem and with all of Israel. And these words became really, really important in light of the exiles and all of the, the captivities that they were taken off into over about a 150-year period, beginning in 721 with Assyria coming down and, and taking Samaria off into captivity, and then later on with the Babylonians. And these, these words were filled with hope. But there was always this question about who is this special servant? And there have been all kinds of debates raging among the rabbis ever since. Well, when you go to the New Testament, what you find is that all of the, the Gospels look at these passages and they think about Jesus and they, they all identify Jesus as this special servant. In fact, as we talked about last week, one of the really familiar stories is when Jesus is in Nazareth. It's, it's the, the day of Shabbat. It's the Sabbath day. And part of the synagogue service is for one of the the, the men of the congregation of, of the, the synagogue to sit in the seat of Moses and there is a reading from, uh, from the prophets, uh, there's a reading from Torah, there's a reading from the wisdom lit and, and Jesus is sitting in the Moses seat when it's handed to him the, the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up to Isaiah chapter 61 which is you know, sort of at the heart of the special servant passage in Isaiah and he says, he reads the words that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me, is to preach good news and to, to release the captives and so on and so forth. You know the passage. And he says, today in your hearing these words have been fulfilled. Jesus is that special servant. And when we, we look back through the life of Jesus, some of the things that we learn out of Isaiah chapter 40 through the end, chapter 66, some very special, meaningful things about the ministry of Jesus and God's human project. And uh, one of the things that, that we see that Isaiah is talking about through these passages are the good things that God is going to bring, the, the good news that is going to be preached, the gospel that is going to rain down upon the, the parched souls of the earth. And one of the things that this particular passage out of Isaiah chapter 54, we looked at uh, the passage about... Um, uh, you know, the skepticism of Israel that any of this prophecy was going to come true. They knew it intellectually in their head that, that this was true in chapter 49, but they were a little bit skeptical. And God says to them, think about the metaphor of, of, of a mother nursing a child, how she'll never forget that. The, the, the child of her womb, I am more. I, as, as much as she would never forget you, even more so, I will never forget you. And see, I even have you engraved on the palms of my hand. This is the good news that God is going to bring these things. He is not going to forget all the core being of God. Everything about Him is driven back towards Israel. In chapter 54, we see you know, this idea of good news welling up again. And one of the things that in this particular meditation out of, out of Isaiah that we see is that there is a power of God in this good news to restructure the human heart. To restructure it. Notice uh, how startling the vision is in chapter 54, beginning in verse 1. He says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Now for, for, for Western people, modern people, that's, that's not all that startling. But for people living during the time of Isaiah, this is downright startling. Sing, O barren woman, now, to understand just how astonishing this vision is that Isaiah is, is giving, we need to consider the importance of childbearing in the ancient world. When it, when it came to childbearing in the ancient world, during the time that Isaiah was speaking, there was one axiom that was, that was absolutely true, and that is more is better. 
The more children, the better. More children meant that your family would do better. And they would do better, for instance, in the area of economics. Economically, you would be blessed by having more children. Your land would have a better chance of producing more. Your, your shop would have a better chance to produce more. Why? Because more labor, more workers, meant more income. And it would be no great exaggeration to say that the number of children that you had affected your family's economic security. And the second area outside of the, 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 the economics of childbearing was you know, retirement. If you did not have children in your old age, then you would starve to death. And because of the mortality rates, to have a couple of children in your old age who would take care of you and make sure that you were comforted and that you were fed and that you were clothed meant that you had to have a lot of kids during those childbearing years. It was important for economics. It was important for retirement. Third area is security. If your tribe or your village was not having kids, then there was a real danger that the tribe or the village on the other side of the river would begin to think that their numbers being superior, yours being inferior, that this would be the time to attack and take all of your, your things. But the more kids you had, the more children that the, the, the women brought into the village through birth, the, the bigger your army. And so if there's some women that are sitting around the millstone and they're talking about all of the things that are happening around Jerusalem or, 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 or Galilee, and, and one of them in the circle said, you know, I know all of you want to have about 13 or 14 kids, but guess what? I only want to have about 2.5. The other ladies would look at her as if she were nuts, as if she were crazy. You want to have What? You don't want to have as many children as you can? They would think that she had a death wish. And they were a reminder that, that all of this childbearing was really not about her. It was about all of them. It was about the village. It was about their nation. It was about all of their futures together. The more children, the better. Don't you get that? She needed to have as many kids as possible. And women who bore lots of children were in, in many respects national heroes. But as in all cultures, you can take something that's good and you can turn it into an ultimate thing which is not so good. And women who did not or could not bear children regardless of, 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 of what was happening with them were regarded as worthless and they felt worthless. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 30, Rachel's cry? She said to Jacob, her husband, Give me children or I'll, what? Die. Now, in a sense, every culture is oppressive like this because every culture puts something forward and says that you have to have this if you're going to have status, if you're going to have, to have, if you're going to have some kind of worth. And, and for our own present culture, you know, our, our culture, our society says, you know, if you want to have status, it's about having the right personal assets, you know, the right look, the right physique, the right career, the right money, etc., etc., and so when Rachel says, give me children or I'll, or I'll die, she is saying that her psychological and her emotional well-being is crushed in barrenness and childlessness. And so there is a part of every culture that we as believers, as disciples of Jesus, must confront. And that part of the culture is that part that cooperates with a part of our heart that wants to justify itself apart from God. I have status in the time of Isaiah because I have many children. 
Today I'm doing okay because I have the right car, I have the right kind of physique, I have the right looks, I have the right job, I have the right assets. And it's not hard really when you, when you think about it. And we all struggle with this. It's not hard to go after these things because everyone else in the world is chasing the exact same things. And it's into that kind of a culture that Isaiah says, Sing, O barren woman. Into a, a culture that lifted fertile women to the status, status of national hero. God says, Sing, O barren woman. Isaiah is saying that there is a way out from under the burden that crushes our hearts. And that's when we seek our true identity in God. There is a way out from under that. And that is to find our, 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 our self-image in God. Now, now get this. Notice what God is saying here. What God is saying in these verses is that what He does for the barren, childless, broken-hearted woman is, is greater than what a multitude of sons do for a fertile woman. And that is a huge... Hugely, gigantic, radical thing to say when children represented economic security and retirement security and military security and all of these kinds of securities. I mean, how does that happen? How are the barren women really going to sing? Well, in verse 5, the answer comes. This is how it happens. It says, know this. Your Maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is His name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Your Maker is your husband. Now every religion in the world exhorts you to try and to try harder to live up to some kind of a standard. And if you get a positive result out of all of that trying at the end of your life, then that's when you get the good stuff. Not so in Christianity. Christianity is a legal relationship or a legal standing in which you come into now, right now. I mean, we talked about being united with God through Christ in our lesson this morning. And, 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 and think about that again in light of, of your Maker being your husband. The Creator God. God Almighty is His name. As we talked about this morning, I mean, this is not something that takes place in the future. And the perfect metaphor really is marriage. I mean, marriage is the most intense love relationship that is possible, but at the same time, it is a legal status. And when you think about you know, everything that... You, uh, think about the story that we told this morning about here, here's the woman who, who doesn't have the right looks and she does, certainly doesn't have anything in her bank account. And at that wedding, everything takes place for her. I mean, she is not, the, you know, not, not beautiful, but she's made beautiful at that wedding. The white dress, the jewels, she, the, the makeup, the hair, everything. And think about her poverty. One second, a split second, before she says, I do, she has nothing. But a split second after she says, I do, she has everything. Everything. Our faith offers us now because our Creator is, is uh, the, your, your Maker is your husband. Our faith offers for us now the delight and the acceptance and the blessing, all of the blessings of God. And nothing, nothing in the world comes close to offering what Christianity does. And God says to the barren woman, I don't want you to look anywhere else. I will be your husband. And what could be more important, more profound, more full of blessing, just chock full of profound, rich blessing than to be sacrificially loved by the Creator of the universe? 
I mean, real freedom comes to your life when your soul rests in God the way that your body settles into a nice, comfortable bed at the end of the day. But here's another part of this truth. Someone might say, you know, I believe in God. I believe the Scriptures are inspired. I believe the Gospel. But I've never experienced anything like that. Listen, the restructuring of your heart also comes in the knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins. That your Maker is your husband and that your sins have been forgiven. And the power of God in the Gospel is also in the forgiveness of human sin. Now, now this is where the image of the barren woman connects to the suffering servant in the preceding chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. I don't know when the last time you read Isaiah 53 has been, but it is one of the most shocking pieces of Scripture in the entire Bible. It is shocking because of the violence in it. Now, all, you know, all through the Old Testament, there are hints of, of a Messiah figure who's going to come, uh, the special servant, the selected servant of God. He's going to come and He's going to put all things right. In Isaiah chapter 40, He appears and He's going to be bringing salvation. You also see that in chapters 42, 47, and 50. But then Isaiah, we roll into Isaiah 53. And the most appalling thing happens. This prince, this Messiah, this special servant, this God-selected individual who was to bring an end to violence is a victim of violence. This suffering servant of God who is to bring justice into the world becomes himself a victim of injustice in the world. Look at verse 8. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. To be cut off from the land was to suffer a horrible and violent death. A death. In, in verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. He was pierced. To be pierced means that there is something that goes into the front of your body and comes out the back. It's a, it's a horrible and a terrible way to die. And it contradicts everything that we would guess about the Messiah. I mean, how could He go through this? How can He bring an end to justice and, and bring an end to violence by being broken to pieces Himself? It's a good question. And it, it brings us to the second thing that is really shocking about this passage. The first is it's just really violent. The second is that there's this vicarious nature to it. You know, all through the Old Testament, there are all kinds of animal sacrifices to take away human guilt. And what is clear is that sacrificing animals, that was okay. But the sacrifice of a human being, verboten. It was forbidden. It was strictly forbidden. Human sacrifices were always, always forbidden. And to do so was sort of this, this sign of ungodliness. But then you have this in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes His life a what? Guilt offering. The Messiah becomes a guilt offering. And then there's a third shocking thing that comes from this text. Verse 4. He takes up our infirmities and He carries our sorrows. He takes them up. This Messiah, this prince, this special servant experiences the violence in becoming a guilt offering and he does it 
voluntarily. The piercing, the crushing, the bearing up iniquity. He does it voluntarily. And Isaiah says that the suffering servant becomes what sounds like a kamikaze of sorts by voluntarily being pierced for our sins. Now how do you make sense of all of this? The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, it's not symbolic of the nation. I mean, that would be nonsensical. That the nation suffers in order for the nation not to suffer, to put an end to suffering? If, 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 If that's what it means, then it becomes nonsensical. It's a human. This is a human being. But who in the world would do this? Well, centuries later, we go to Acts 8. There's this eunuch that has gone all the way from where he lived in Africa to Jerusalem to worship God. And you wonder, why in the world would somebody make a trip like this? I mean, to make a trip like this, you know what that means? It probably means that you're not going to return alive. I mean, it was dangerous, it was long, it would take forever, it was expensive, it was fraught with danger, traveling was really, really dangerous. For somebody to make a trip like this because it's long and dangerous in a lot of areas means that there's got to be a huge motivation for it to happen. And I can only think of a reason why a person would make a trip like this all the way to Jerusalem, except that they were maybe deeply and spiritually dissatisfied. This eunuch is heading to Jerusalem seeking to fill his emptiness. And, and you know, part of the long trips to Jerusalem that, that were uh, regulated in Deuteronomy, that, you know, those great three great festivals each year, the people were to make those pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for those three great festivals during the year in order, it was, it was symbolic in these feasts and these celebrations of being, uh, of being blessed by God and being filled with God. But you know as well as I do that because of the color of his skin and because he had, been, you know, he had been made a eunuch, there was no way that he was going to be able to get very close to that temple. There was no way he was going to... He, he was turned away from that temple because he had been castrated and turned into a eunuch. And we're told that he's a eunuch because he works with the royal family. It was a terrible price to pay in a culture where descendants, children, heirs, economic securities, retirement security, military security. To be a eunuch was a terrible price to pay in a culture where children were just everything. And maybe that's why he's feeling empty. I don't know. But no one who has, who has had that done to them can get close to the presence of God in the temple. And after all of that journey, he has turned away. And now he's on his way back. And Philip, by the power of the Spirit, finds him. And what is he reading? It's this very passage out of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. I don't know. But I bet this must have been electrifying for this man to read about the one who had no physical descendants. And Philip tells him about Jesus. 
that Jesus is the answer to the question of who it is who experiences everything that we read in Isaiah 53. And if Jesus is God come in the flesh, then it addresses what we find shocking in Isaiah. It's not exactly a kamikaze mission at all. As, as humans, our life is a gift to us, and we don't have the right to take it, but God's life is His own, and He lays it down voluntarily for us. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus is speaking. He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. I think this explains also the vicariousness of it. I've, we've, we've talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer as much as C.S. Lewis, right? But one of the things, most profound things that, that Bonhoeffer has helped me understand is that there is no real forgiveness. There's no profound forgiveness unless there's suffering. You have to, you have to forgive. And, and if you don't, then you're filled with bitterness and you're filled with resentment and, and you become a part of the endless stream of retaliation and violence in the world. You have to forgive. But forgiveness is costly. I, somebody has really done you poorly, hurt you. They've, they've, they've broken down your character in front of a lot of people. They've hurt your feelings and they've fractured your heart. They've made you agonize and they have filled you with, 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 with pain, emotional pain, because of their words and their actions. And you want some payback, but you don't. And because you don't get the pound of flesh, because you don't get the payback, what happens? If you don't make them suffer, what happens? You suffer. You suffer. You're the one that pays for it. You want to exact revenge on someone for a wrong, and yet you don't, and you suffer. There is no such thing as forgiveness without suffering. And what this eunuch realizes is that God has suffered to forgive us. If God was not going to make us pay, then God was going to have to pay. And God, in the form of Jesus, went through this violent, violent, violent death for us. And when the eunuch heard it, it revolutionized him. It, it, it electrified him. And in verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But he, the eunuch, went on his way, what? Say it. Rejoicing. When we try to connect with God as a performance demanding God, that God has to accept me because I'm pretty good at being a good guy, that I do all of the right things, that I don't do anything that is against His will. In fact, you know, I fast three times a week. You know the story out of Luke. When we try to connect with God as a performance demanding God, we might say that we know Him, but He doesn't. But he, our hearts are not moved by Him. And if we try to connect with God as one who just loves us and accepts everyone without the consequences of sin and crime against the universe being paid, then that doesn't really electrify our souls very much, because it's a cheap love. But God is so holy that He could not leave evil unpunished and God is so full of love that He wouldn't let you bear the brunt of it. And the Gospel just humbles you. 
because you are a sinner. And you realize that you've been living your life trying to find your esteem, your self-image, your worth, the, you know, the important life by having the right kind of assets. And all it did was drive you into the ground and paralyze you with fear that you might lose it somehow. The gospel humbles you because you realize that you're not getting anywhere. You're a sinner. But then it lifts you up because you're loved. Your creator, your maker, is your husband. And this gives you a new identity. You don't have to get your identity from stuff or from other things the culture says is relevant or beautiful or important. The gospel really is good news. Because it not only frees us from the very thing that's killing us, but it connects us to the one who gives us life even life everlasting. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. And we've come to that really important part of our assembly where people have an opportunity to respond to, to God's Word, to His message, to what He has said, not only through the Gospels and the writings of Paul, but even through the prophets and the writings of Moses and the writings of David that point us to the, to the beauty and the profound salvation that is found nowhere else except in Christ. And, and tonight, if, if you've been thinking to yourself, you know what, I, I, I do believe in God, and I have been trying to live the right kind of a life, but I've never experienced any of this, then tonight is, is the night in which you have the opportunity to make it all different from here on out. To understand that you get your identity from your Maker, the, 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 that God Himself sacrificially loves you in such a way that He lifts you up and blesses you and makes you beautiful and makes you rich. And not in a material, physical sense, which most of the people in the world would give everything that they have in order to, to sense, just for a minute, what we have for all of eternity. And if you want to tonight, your sins can be washed away. If you want to tonight, you can confess that this is this, this, this Jesus is the Lord of your life. You can make a decision to turn your life around and to go into the, the direction of the Christ who blesses you this way, participating through that baptism in His death, burial, and resurrection. Or if there are other ways that our church can minister to you tonight during the singing of this song that Brad's going to lead us, come down and talk to our shepherds. Let's stand and sing together.